If you would, please take your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 4. We are doing a series called The Gifts and the Body. The body being the church, the body of Christ. The gifts being certain endowments that God has graciously given to the church in two forms. The first form that we're paying attention to right now is in the form of offices. Now let me give you kind of a run at this from a different perspective because there seemed to be a little bit of um, fog in maybe what I was saying last week. So let me explain this real quick. PJ, if you wouldn't mind, bring up the first graphic on prophecy. The church is something that was not explained in the Old Testament. It was constantly reiterated that God's heart wasn't just for the Jews, but that it was also for the Gentiles, and that one day Gentiles... Is this on? Is this on? There we go. The Gentiles would certainly come to faith in Christ. You find this reiterated in the New Testament, and it constantly draws us back to instances where prophets wrote about this idea of Gentiles coming into it. Though we were far off, and Gentiles had all of the, or sorry, Jews had all of this revelation, doesn't mean that we were so far off to where we were gone, and there was no hope for us whatsoever. God's going to bring us in. But as far as how he was going to do that, the church is his answer, and this is what took everybody by surprise. Now, anytime that you are dealing with interpreting prophecy, and I'm not going to take you through all of that right now, but I want you to get this, this, this idea. On the left-hand side, you see a lens. It's like you're looking through uh, a telescope. And you may be looking off there, and you'll see a, a lighter-colored mountain, and you'll see a darker-colored mountain. You're seeing the peaks of both of them, and notice they're numbered one and two. We go to the second point here, and we see where our lens is as we're looking, but what we notice is there's considerable difference, or sorry, distance, between those two peaks. You might have one situation up here and one situation back here, and they're both being talked about in the same passage, one right after the other. But what's interesting is there's an anticipated gap that is in between of the valley between the two peaks. And that's how we should understand the idea of where the church fits in here. Number one would be the first coming of Christ, speaking about his birth, speaking about how he'd be born of a virgin, how he'd be born in meager circumstances, everything that would happen surrounding that. And then you have the rejection by the Jews of their promised Messiah, by which they had all this information. And so Jesus turns from them, begins speaking about his death, burial, resurrection. He then ascends into heaven, and we have this brand new thing called the church in the valley situation. And then... You will also have in a certain passage, like I've given you the example of Isaiah 61 up there, where Jesus will also immediately talk about something to do with his second coming. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because in Luke 4, Jesus shows us this is how you interpret prophecy and you have to be very careful. He goes into a synagogue, a scroll is given to him, he opens it up to Isaiah 61, he reads a little bit out of it, and he talks about the favorable year of the Lord and he closes it right before he talks about the judgment and all the crazy stuff that's going to go down. And he looks at him and he says, I tell you the truth, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't move on. Now they didn't have verse numbers back then, but if you're like super type A personality, he even stops in the middle of a verse. So you know you're going, 
You're getting the twitches from that, right? But Jesus shows us in that one instance how to interpret prophecy. You say, why is that important? Because the church is something that was always there, but it was not something that God was talking about at that time. Jesus was always going to have to die for the people. Did God ultimately know that the Jews were going to deny their Messiah, and that's the means by which he was going to die? Yeah, he understood that. But he also gave them every reason in the world to believe in him by testing signs, wonders, miracles, truth that he was uh, speaking. Even when Herod asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem. They even knew. Unbelievers, and they still knew. So the church is this entirely different thing that Old Testament-wise, not known of whatsoever. If you want to copy these references down, they'll be on the website later. You can look at it. But I encourage you to do a study of that and see how Jesus handled this situation himself. I just wanted to clear that up of where the church falls in that situation. In Ephesians 4, we're looking at gifts that have been given to the church, and they end, end up being actually a five-office, word-centered gift that God has given. If you notice in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, And he, that's Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and teachers. This is the way that Jesus is seeking to fill all things, as it's mentioned at the end of verse 10. We are the manifestation of his body on earth. He is the head. And so any work that Jesus needs to do, he's looking to do it through us, together, not apart from one another, not that we're out being crusaders or lone warriors or something strange like that. He wants the body working together, and he has designed the church as the entity of which to reach the world now. That's what he's doing. So what he's done is he's given offices. The first office we're looking at is apostle. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is probably different from what you're used to. Number one, I'm actually highly organized in this sermon. That's very different than what you're used to. Okay? So if you want to write this down, you can. But I want to walk you through and show you some things about apostles and why we need to thank God for the apostles as a gift of grace to the church and what they have done, and also address the question, are apostles here now? First thing we want to look at is the definition of an apostle. It is the Greek word apostolos. And the idea means sent forth with orders. One theologian has actually said, well, it's a delegation. It's, it's delegates who've been given something. If you were to look for the secular usage of how they would have thrown this word around, how did it happen outside of the text of Scripture? It was a word that was often used of wanting to commission some ships or a fleet of ships to go out and accomplish something. You have a task, you're going on a journey, you're going to accomplish a situation, and usually they were given papers with authority in order to help accomplish whatever needed to happen for them to get done. In John 13, 16, it's actually translated in our Bibles as sent one. It's the same word, apostolos. As with anything, context determines meaning. Are we talking about the 12 apostles or who are we talking about? 
Another one is the fact that they're called messengers. In some generic sense, the word apostolos can be used as messengers who have been submitted, and you see the references there. What's interesting is, is 68 out of the 79 times that it's mentioned in the New Testament, you find it in either what Luke wrote, because he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts, or you find it in the writings of Paul, which are 13 writings of the New Testament. Now, what is uh, an apostle? How should we understand who is an apostle? Some interesting things I found out here. Number one, Jesus is mentioned as an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. That seems odd. Didn't he commission apostles? Didn't he start apostles? Well, he's also mentioned as an apostle. That shouldn't seem unusual to us. Has Jesus been sent to do something? Absolutely. Has he been sent with authority to do something? So notice that's a feasible way completely to use it. But we also see some other strange things. Barnabas is called an apostle in Acts 14, 14. Who's Barnabas? That's not the guy from the Andy Griffith show. He's a friend of Paul. He went out with Paul on his first missionary journey. In fact, he was a pretty nice guy until they had a fight, right? In fact, Barnabas is actually named Joseph because Barnabas was his nickname because he was named after his spiritual gift. He was called the son of encouragement. So he's a really encouraging guy that got into a fight with Paul and they had to break ways. Don't you love the church? He's also called an apostle, Acts 14, 14. Notice they had their problems there too. Paul is listed as an apostle. Sometimes we don't think of him as the 12. But if you go through and you look at all of his writings, again, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. You find in nine of those books, he actually opens the book introducing himself as an apostle. And let, me, let me ask you if you've ever heard of these guys. Adronicus and Junius. Anybody ever heard of them? Anybody name your kids that? Okay. They're mentioned at the end of Romans, Romans 16, verse 7. They're actually called apostles. Now, another interesting one is James. And this is James being Jesus' half-brother, the legitimate son of Joseph and Mary. He's actually issued as an apostle in Galatians 1.19. And, of course, we know him as writing the epistle of James. It's right after Hebrew. So if you were to look at a broad scope of who's considered an apostle, there's a sense in which the word is used to stretch far beyond what we're accustomed to as just the 12. But let's not cut that short. It's also very much used for the 12 as well. Now, let's before we move forward, let's keep in mind what we saw in Ephesians so far, okay? The Ephesian use of apostle. Let's go to the next slide. The Ephesian use of apostle is always coupled with the idea of prophet. So there's something in Paul's mind that we need to pay attention to about the connection between these two offices. What we saw was, is in Ephesians 2.20, they're designated as a foundation, and we're going to see why that's important today. The next one is the fact that they are revealers of church doctrine. In other words, the apostles and the prophets were ones who were manifesting those things about the church that were previously not known, that were sitting in that valley between the first and the second comings of Christ. But the third thing is also they're listed as a gift to the church. Where's the first mention of apostles? Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10. This is the first time that the word apostles is used in the New Testament. In fact, if, if, if I recall correctly, there are no uses whatsoever in the Old Testament. And here's why I love this passage. Again, 
Chapter breaks will mess you up sometimes. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus is deeply moved with compassion because it says he looks upon a people and they're wandering around like they don't have a shepherd. They don't have any guidance. And it pulls at his heartstrings. And he tells his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We know this, right? And then he does something incredibly dangerous. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into the field. Now that sounds good, and we like that, right? Yeah, we'll pray. Because maybe we can bring my lost friend to church, and maybe Jeremy will tell them about Jesus so that they'll get saved. We like that, because it takes the responsibility off us. But I love what Jesus does next. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them what? Authority. You need to know that. You need to mark that. You need to pay attention. Because one of the most important things about what designates an apostle to do what an apostle does is the fact that authority from Jesus himself has been placed on them to accomplish what needs to happen. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now watch this, verse 2. Now the names of the twelve, here it is, first mention, apostles. The twelve ones who were sent out with authority, the delegates of Jesus Christ. They are these, the first Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew his brother, and James the son of of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And then, if you were to continue on, Jesus gives marching orders. Here's how you're to conduct your ministry amongst the lost sheep of Israel. Go only to them and preach to them about the coming kingdom that I am offering them. Very interesting study. What's the first instance that we need to pay attention to the idea that it speaks specifically and i would say in the new testament predominantly of the 12 and the fact that they were given authority by jesus himself to move forward what are the qualifications that we find out later for an apostle if you're going to go somewhere if you're going to have any kind of clout whatsoever people want to know that you've got something behind what you say in order to prove that you're going to do an effective job or that they could take you seriously. I have a hard time taking Jay seriously. He has nothing to his credit. It's getting hot today. He's a good guy. I love him. It's great. But if somebody's going to come to your house, if, if a plumber's going to come to your house, but you called an electrician, you got problems, right? And if you know that somebody is going to be speaking the word, you at least want to see something that evidences. Why should I believe anything this person says? Because what this does, if the New Testament sets up a precedence for us to understand, it helps us see with much clearer glasses when people want to claim to be apostles today. Qualification number one. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts, because that's where we should probably anticipate finding this major qualification. be a lot of flipping around today. It's okay, we need the exercise. Acts chapter 1, what is the first qualification? Look at verse 20. Now this is, this is the discussion that's happening between 120 people that are gathered up in a room praying. 
waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised. He told them, go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. So the, the eleven are there. They've got others amongst them. Peter steps up to say something, and they start talking about what happened to Judas. And he says in verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. That's why the field that was purchased with the money that he got for betraying Jesus became the field of blood, and they didn't use it for anything for no one to dwell on. It's now considered cursed in society. But look what it says. And let another man take his office. Therefore, here's Peter, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Now notice that. All of the men who accompanied us the entire time that Jesus was around. And then he clarifies it for us. Verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John, so he need, they needed to be present around that time that Jesus was baptized, and that happened before he called any of his disciples, until the day that he was taken up from us. What's that? The ascension of Christ. He gives you a timeline. This needs to be somebody who was around at the time of his baptism that followed all the way into the point where he was taken up into the clouds. This is the timeline parameter that is the first qualification for someone to be considered an apostle of Jesus Christ, officially speaking. Not used as messenger or some generic term like that, a sent one. It's actually considered part of the 12. And it says here, one of these must become a witness. That's interesting. Notice he doesn't use an apostle. He's a witness. He's here to speak about what he's seen. He's here to testify to people who don't know with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and, here it is, apostleship. They understand the special calling from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots. Today we would have translated it and they rolled dice. Seems like a good way to make a decision right. Now don't, don't go out and do that, because this is the last time we see this happen. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. In other words, they prayed about it and asked for a decision to be made because the scripture said that Judas's office should be filled should he turn away, and he did. And when that happened, they had somebody that filled the space, and this was Matthias. What's the first requirement for being an apostle? They had to be someone who was present between the time of the baptism of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's qualification number one. Now stop for a second. Are there apostles today? No, they're not just from that first qualification, and we could stop there. But we've got more. Let's go to the second qualification. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 9. Second qualification. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians. Just turn over to the right a few pages, a few books. 1 Corinthians 9.1. There was obviously some contention in the church because people were doubters of Paul's apostleship. And he's there trying to love this cantankerous bunch. And so as he's justifying his ministry and talking to them about his apostleship and making sure that he earns his living 
making tents and selling them and not taking any money from them. He's constantly having to reiterate who his office is as an apostle. And he brings up some interesting things in chapter 9, verse 1. Excuse me for a second. He asks some rhetorical questions. Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Is Paul free? Yes, you might want to write that in. If you're not for sure, we all answered it for you. Write it in there. Am I not a what? An apostle. The answer is yes. And look how he qualifies that. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, he did. And are you not my work in the Lord? Everybody remember the scene? Paul has official papers to go and to jail anyone who was found as part of the way. If we find them and they're believers in this supposed Messiah guy, Jesus, him being a good Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, blameless as far as the law was concerned, and zealous for the things of God, was to incarcerate them. And if they resist, history has told us that he actually had approval to put them to death but to jail them. And as he's on his way, Jesus appears and said, hey, why are you persecuting me? And I love his response as he's picking himself up picking himself up from falling off of his donkey. Can't see a thing. Who are you, Lord? Now it's amazing all the rationalizations I've read in commentary about, well, you didn't really understand Lord. Somebody appears to you in a bright light and smacks you off your donkey, I'm going to call him Lord, okay? (laughs) Who are you, Lord? And it's interesting because he's persecuting the church, right? Isn't that the problem? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Everybody see the connection between the head of the church and the body of the church? To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. This tells us a lot more about how special What we have right now during this age really is being a part of a local body of believers. People come against us, rail us, want to persecute us, speak against us. They're actually doing it to Jesus as well, and he is right there in the thick with us in the midst of it. What's the second qualification? You had to be a witness to his resurrection. When was Paul called? Acts chapter 9, that's well beyond the ascension, is it not? Yeah. So notice, he may not grasp the first qualification here, but the fact that you're commissioned by the Lord Jesus, well, he's considered an apostle as well. And obviously used well of the Holy Spirit. 13 books of the New Testament. Sounds like God had a lot he wanted to accomplish through this man. How about the third qualification? Turn over one book with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is interesting because we have probably what we would consider charlatans that try to gravitate towards this verse often in religious realms. Chapter 12, verse 12. Look at what it says. The signs of a true apostle. Pay attention to that. Or one who is an apostle is probably the more literal rending, rendering. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. Now, we'll look at this. Signs, wonders, and miracles. In other words, in order to be considered an apostle, you had to be able to perform signs, wonders, and miracles. Everybody remember that Peter's on the way to the temple? Acts chapter 3. There's a guy there that hasn't walked in forever. He says, please, sirs, help. Peter and John are going along. He looks at him and he says, I don't have any silver and gold, 
Now that's important to understand because money is usually the first place that modern day apostles go wrong. They want your silver and gold. I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And what did he do? He got up and he walked. In fact, it got to the point where when Peter would pass around the city, they're just trying to put sick people out there hoping his shadow gets on them. That's weird. I don't understand that. I don't even know if I can put that together in my head. But obviously something was going on in order to draw attention to Christ. Why was that? Because Peter was an apostle. He had that authority. He had that commissioning. He had that gifting. And these are the gifts that surrounded someone who was called an apostle. Now, I want to give you this to write down if you wouldn't mind. We don't have time today. My tally took way too long. But <laughs> his wife was doing fine, but when he got up there, it was over. See, I got you. I got you. Okay. But I want you to write this down. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 15. And the reason is, is because while Paul is defending his apostleship there, he actually puts himself in comparison with those who are false apostles, and he actually calls them messengers of Satan. And what was the dividing line between the two? The dividing line was Paul is refusing to take money from them to prove to them that he's not out to hurt them in any way. He just wants to minister the gospel. These false apostles are seeking every chance they can to get every gain that they possibly can in order to take advantage of the people that they're ministering to. And that was a separation line. Another thing I'd like to give you is probably the entire book of Jude. It's only one chapter long, but it talks all about the danger of false teachers. And one of the interesting things you find is it brings up two major pitfalls of false teachers that we have today. Number one, sexual promiscuity. It's huge. In fact, I did some research on the internet. Anybody ever heard of JMMI Ministries? Look it up sometime, JMMI. Because the apostle whoever had all kinds of crazy things going on, claiming to be apostle, claiming to have authority of the Lord, and it was all things dealing with money, dealing with sex, and the third one, slandering celestial beings. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. God never called us to do that. God never called us to condemn Satan or anything. Churches too long have paid attention to Satan. He is not the focus we deal with. He's just a bothersome byproduct. Get our eyes on Jesus and he becomes a lot less of a problem. But if you want to know three places where this stuff goes wrong, money situations, sex situations, celestial deity situations, it's always a bad deal. We don't have time for it today. Thanks, Vitaly. We're going to move on. (laughs) Are there apostles today? Do they exist today? Are you sure? Let's bring up the, the, the first quote we have here. This is an overview of a book that was written just a little bit ago by a guy named Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner actually teaches, if I recall correctly, I want to say at Talbot Theological Seminary. Here's what it says. Overview of Apostles Today by C. Peter Wagner. Transformation of the city was the battle cry in the 1990s. Anybody remember that? Some of you weren't even born then. Gosh, it makes me feel old. (laughs) Be quiet. What's that? You're not even for sure where you are. Uh, what's happening on the streets today? How far have we come since then? And how do apostles fit into the urban landscape? And how do they fit into God's plans? Now stop. How did we get from transformation of the city and modern day apostles? You might see where the connection happened there. No, they're just all like kind of lumped in there together. Let's go to the next one. See Peter Wagner, our generation's greatest authority on the apostolic realm, has been writing on these subjects for a number of years. 
He now brings these topics together in one volume for an insightful look at the spheres of authority. Everybody remember what we talked about? If you're an apostle, it's because you've been given authority. And this is what false apostles want. They want the authority because they love the power. They love the advantage that happens, and they want to try to leverage that against people by extolling this title. The authority uh, that are all around us. Wagner's most authoritative book yet, everybody see how that's going on? On apostles. Apostles Today looks at the progress of the New Apostolic Reformation. There's worth a Google. The New Apostolic Reformation begun in the beginning of the 1990s and continuing today. It also goes on to say, This book is a call for apostles to assume their rightful place of work with God to see His will accomplished here on earth. Now stop. Do you have to be an apostle for that to be a reality in your life? No, you just got to be a Christian. God desires to work through His body. Not just special people. He uses certain offices to accomplish certain tasks, but we have to ask ourselves, what is that task? And by no means does that negate the rest of the body or they become second-class believers. Not at all. Well, the problem is, is you apostles just need to wake up today. That's the problem. We're all asleep. Wagner relates his decades of experience and those of others which show the role of apostles not only in the traditional church. Isn't it interesting that the word traditional church is used and not in the biblical church? See, there's nothing about Scripture that's mentioned in this overview at all but also in the extended church. Apostles Today offers fresh vision for the role of apostles in healthy churches, workplaces, and cities. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the twelve leave everything that they were doing to solely minister? So as far as them being in workplaces, no. Cities? Well, yeah, where else are you going to minister at? But notice it's not a conglomeration of all of that stuff. There's a lot of problems with that overview. I found this by J.I. Packer. He brought up something very interesting. Next quote. Oh, it's tiny. My wife tells me that's not good presentation skills. <laughs> she taught public presentation for years. And she's like, don't, don't ever turn around. Do something. The apostles were agents of God's revelation of the truths that would become the Christian rule of faith in life. Remember this. The interesting thing about the apostles, even Matthias, they were all put together before the birth of the church. Now why is that? Because everything that Jesus did and taught is to be unfolded in the body of the church through doctrine and implementing it for application. Living the life of Jesus now. That's the idea. So, God's revelation of the truths that would become a Christian rule of faith and life, church doctrine. As such, and through Christ's appointment of them as his authorized authority, representatives, the apostles exercised a unique and functional authority in the infant church. There are no apostles today, though some Christians fulfill ministries that are in particular ways apostolic in style. Now, that's not to say he agrees with it, but it's to say that they try to claim that. No new canonical canonical revelation is currently being given, and that is the crux here. Apostolic teaching authority resides in the canonical scriptures of which the apostles' own writings are the core and the key. This is really what sets apart the idea of apostles. If there are apostles today, 
if they've been commissioned by the Lord Jesus to speak on his behalf, and if they say something apart from what we can validate in Scripture, is this new revelation that we should add on to the book of Revelation? See how concerning that can get, though. Well, I have a word from the Lord. Somebody says that, hold on. Because after they say it, can you, can you tell me what book, chapter, and verse that is? That's what we need to be asking. If the end of the New Testament is open, it's open for a lot of things. And that's really what it comes down to, the authority of an apostle. Have they spoken in such a way, served and fulfilled their purpose, and passed off the scene as to where they're not necessary anymore? And if that's the case, how can we prove that? Let me take you to one verse real quick. 2 Peter 1. This is very important. Written by Peter, who was a? Man, you guys are on top of it. You are, you are going to walk out of here educated as all get out. This is great. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Dealing with the nature of how Scripture was given to us. Very, very important to understand. How was it communicated, and can we use that as a measurement for when people claim to be apostles today? Verse 20. But know this first of all, obviously this is very important to Peter that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Let me read that again. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This is why when Joseph Smith came along saying, well, this angel called Moroni revealed these things to me that were written on golden tablets that I'm to communicate and start this new movement of God. And everybody said, whoa, let's see the golden tablets. Well, I don't have them. Then he's amassed an incredible following. And today we have the Mormons based off of false doctrine, based off of someone's own interpretation of what God said. See how dangerous it can be? Look at verse 21. Are you saying Mormons aren't saved? Yes, I'm saying Mormons are not saved. If they have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, no one is saved. I don't care where they're from. That's the criteria. Verse 21, for prophecy was ever made by an act, sorry, forgive me, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, notice that, doesn't originate in us, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, men who were carried along, men who were bore up. It's like God made sure. It wasn't just like a mindless stenciling or writing or a stenographer or something like that that was going on. No, the Holy Spirit carried them for the very words that they ought to say because they're his, his words through them. That's how Scripture was communicated. Not by saying that we have the perpetuation of an office that doesn't still exist, but yet because we want the authority and we have the abuse of power that goes on, we all of a sudden have this word from the Lord, and next thing you know, it leads people astray, and they all die in some weird place because they all drank tainted Kool-Aid. That's weird. That's weird. I'll never forgive David Koresh for ruining Waco, Texas, because that's where Dr. Pepper's from. I will never forgive him for that. It's a mess. I take that personally. You may laugh. It's for real. Moving on, if apostles are here now, we'd have to conclude that the Word of God's not complete. Here's a quote from Norman Geisler. Go ahead, PJ. PJ's got an itch trigger finger back there. It's okay. And I can't read this either, so I'm going to turn around. This is all bad presentation. 
The canon of the New Testament. What do we mean by the canon? We mean from Matthew to Revelation. A canon is a measurement stick. And so we're talking about those 27 books. The canon of the New Testament, by implication from the factors that formed it, should be viewed as closed. It's a reasonable view that the New Testament canon was completed by the first century A.D. Now, why is that? Anybody know who the last apostle was to die? John. Anybody know what the last book was to be written? Revelation. Anybody know when he wrote it? Around 95 A.D. And then he passed off the scene. The canon is closed. Why? No more authoritative pronunciation of what God's Word is. So it says here, excuse me, uh, it is reasonable to view that the New Testament canon was completed by the first century A.D., by which time all the apostles had died. On dealing with this issue, it is important to consider the passage in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which states that God has spoken through Christ as final revelation. That's what, that's what the author says. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His what? His Son. So all the Old Testament was preparatory for Jesus. All of the New Testament is explanatory of Jesus. And when it was done, it was done. John served his purpose and he passed away. Now this last quote is really what gets me. It's an excellent quote. F.F. Bruce, if you ever want a good book to read on this, it's called The New Testament Manuscripts, Are They Reliable? It's not very thick whatsoever. I know some of you are like, yeah, I haven't been sleeping well lately. What's that book? That's not why you need to read it. Read it because it really is a good book. And this is really small. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa at Hippo Regis in 393 and at Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. In other words, by the time that 393 and 397 rolled around, the church had already been dealing with those 37 or excuse me, 27 books that they understood to be authoritative. This was just officially saying we're just setting it in stone. But for 300 or so years, they'd already grasped those. So this wasn't something like, you're going to believe this, you're going to believe this, you're going to... That's not how they did it. You wonder why the apocryphal books are not in there. Because by general understanding of revelation and inspiration, they recognize this is not from God. It may be good history. It may tell a good story, but it's not from God. That's what makes the difference. General apostolic authority. Let's finish with this. I'm going to have you turn somewhere you've never turned before together. I know I'm going long. Blame Vitaly. <laughs> turn to your table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. The table of contents. And find the little section there that says the New Testament. Let's look at something really interesting. Table of contents, the New Testament. Of course, we know our books of the Bible. We start out with? No. New Testament. Matthew, there we go. Talking New Testament here. Apostles of the New Testament. Is Matthew an apostle? He is. Check. Right? Apostolic authority. Mark. Is Mark an apostle? 
No. He's not. Uh-oh. What do we do about that? Everybody remember John Mark? Everybody remember him? Missionary journey's too scary. I'm going home to mom. Everybody remember that guy? And that's why Barnabas and Paul got in a fight. Because Mark was related to Barnabas. And Barnabas was like, let's give the guy another try. And Paul's like, no, he deserted us. Forget that guy. And then they got in a fight. However, history records or believes that all the things that happened in Mark's high-action, fast-paced gospel was actually an account that was given to him from Peter. So Peter was reiterating some of the high points that happened throughout Jesus' ministry. That's why it just starts off in this like Chuck Norris action scene thing going on. There's no preparation for it whatsoever. He's just, bam, he's doing miracles. It's crazy. But when that happens, you know Peter, right? The guy quick to shoot off his mouth and do all that kind of stuff. Makes sense to me. He had Peter going over it. Luke, was Luke an apostle? No, he wasn't. But he was a doctor. That still doesn't qualify him. But he did write Luke and Acts, yes? Anybody know what he did in Acts to be around apostles? Who was he with a lot of the time? Paul. He spent a ton of time with Paul. And you can tell from the differences between when he says them or we. You look at the personal pronouns that are going on there. There's oftentimes Luke considers himself as part of the missionary journey as he's going on. So he had revelation to that, directly or indirectly. Now look, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. All of them written by Paul. All of them by an apostle. All of them having authority. Hebrews, we don't know who the author is, but you read it, you have no problem saying, wow, this has got the authority of the Holy Spirit all over it. How about the next one? James. Who's James? Half-brother of Jesus and an apostle. Galatians 1.19. He's mentioned as an apostle. First, second, Peter. We know that guy. First, second, third, John. We know that guy. Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus. Let's just give him a pass. I don't know. But if you read through Jude, you'll notice that as well. There's something about having this authority that's on that. Indirectly, he's not directly considered an apostle. But then you have Revelation, who wrote that? John. Why do I take you to your table of contents? Because 22 out of the 27 books that we have sitting right here, apostles directly had a hand in. It was direct revelation carried along by the Holy Spirit, as all 27 books were. And in doing that, we have to ask the question, okay, so why should I be thankful for the apostles and that we've spent so much time on the apostles? Here's the reason why. They're a gift to the church. Think about what they've given you. Look at your table of contents and see what they've given us. See how God used them. We have four biographies of Jesus, interestingly enough, that never contradict one another. We have four of those. We have all of this understanding of church truth. Everybody remember the valley? First coming, second coming, church. And the Lord set aside Paul in particular to give him the bulk of revelation for the church. Thirteen books. We should be grateful. We should be grateful that God didn't just save us and leave us ignorant. That God has actually made us knowledgeable that God has actually blessed us, that he's actually endowed us with this office. But here's one thing for sure. God speaks now through his word. He is not giving new revelation, especially for a lot of people that you could check out, and online is a way to do it, of things that are going to contradict his word. So when we talk about he's given gifts to many, 
giving gifts to the church, the first of these ministries, the apostles, the sent ones with authority who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, were commissioned by Him in some way and had the abilities to perform signs, miracles, and wonders. We are a blessed people. We're blessed people. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have set forth certain people commissioned for your calling. They are, they are people just like we are, but you are the one who makes the difference in what you've called them to. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the Scriptures through them, often by their hand, getting to see their lives and how they continued forward with ministry under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension. We have a lot to be thankful for. We are not ignorant by any means. If anything, we are more accountable for the good news that we have, the good news that we've heard, to share the good news that can save. And so we thank you, Lord, for giving us the New Testament for our edification, for our understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.